Has the Pakal craze ruined knives? Let's find out. Self-defense, self-awareness, self-development. This is the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. Hello and welcome to the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. The Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore is a production of philelmore.com and themartialist.net. I am the aforementioned Phil Elmore, your host. Let's see how many times I can say my name in the opening. Pikal refers, or has at least come to refer loosely, to a group of techniques uh, of reverse edge, uh, reverse grip rather, edge in knives. Reverse grip edge in was, when it became popular, a departure from the way people had taught reverse edge up to that point, which was generally edge out, and you were meant to think that um, reverse grip edge out was the sign of a an advanced martial artist who knew his way around blade work, whereas reverse grip edge in was the, the territory of the Anthony Perkins psycho stab. It was somebody who just didn't know a whole lot about knives. Well, reverse grip edge in changed all that. Uh, Pical means to rip, and very loosely when people talk about Pical, what they're talking about is using a knife in a reverse grip with the edge pointed toward you so that you can stab in and rip out. And there's a lot of different techniques that can be built off that. It's extremely expedient. Um, it is. It can be very fast, very brutal, and it has become extremely popular in the knife world and a lot of people are teaching methods now I'm fascinated by the way that contemporary knife instruction has evolved down through the years Um, for example James Keating's draw point method was a reverse grip method where he was focused on a fast draw and planting of the knife in the reverse grip um, as as a way of, of very expediently, pragmatically defending yourself, doing away with some of the flowy martial arts stuff that had come before and just immediately planting the knife in the attacker. Uh, so in a lot of ways, you could say that this is sort of the natural evolution of that. I'm not saying they are directly connected, but it is a fact that what gets taught in a given realm of instruction it kind of aggregates and evolves in one direction, and sometimes it goes in cycles. But what I mean is it's it's always flowing, and, and all of the people doing stuff now are influencing each other. You can see great examples of this in the handgun world, in, in uh, contemporary gunfighting, if we want to call it that. Uh, you know, there was a time when people taught shooting bladed with your arm out and making as small a target as possible and, you know, siding down the sights and, and doing your thing. Then, uh, you know, as like Jim Cooper uh, popularized the modern technique of the pistol, which was the the weaver stance where you're pushing and pulling and, and getting that dynamic tension. And now people have moved away from that and contemporary uh, shooting doctrine. It went from like weaver to isosceles, the idea being that you're going to naturally drift into an isosceles stance anyway uh, because weaver is, you know, taxing and hard to maintain, those people say. And then from there, we went to various uh, center axis relock type styles. You see more people canting the pistol at an angle, not the horizontal movie hold, but canting the pistol at a, at a 45 degree angle, either when shooting one-handed or maybe even when shooting with two hands, uh, because that gives them more control. And these things, they're all moving, they're flowing. The, the 
contemporary pistol doctrine is evolving. I read an article a long time ago where somebody was like, how come the way people hold their guns in movies and TV has changed down through the years? And of course, the reason the way people do that has changed is because the way people do it in real life has changed. Um, in Miami Vice, Don Johnson is doing the Weaver stance that whole time. He went to like Gunsight and learned there to get trained up for that role. Um, you know, John Wick very famously learned center axis relock and, and a bunch of other contemporary uh, techniques along with the jujitsu and the gun fu type stuff that he does in the John Wick movies. Uh, Keanu Reeves, did I call him John Wick when I said his name? <laughs> They're all the same. Keanu Reeves is John Wick. But anyway, Keanu Reeves got real actual training to do the movie stuff that he's doing. And yeah, the movie stuff and the real stuff are a little different and, you know, the movie stuff is made to look flashier. But contemporary firearms training definitely influences what's in the films and contemporary knife training evolves just like firearms training does sometimes hand in hand sometimes from the same people and so i was having a discussion with a friend of mine who wanted to know or asked the question posed the question uh and we discussed this a little bit has pakal ruined knives and by that by ruined i mean uh, there is a certain type of aesthetic that knives that are meant to be used as conventional knives in a forward grip for cutting or thrusting or slashing, um, and not necessarily even in a self-defense context, but just knives, utility knives. If you're a knife guy, if you've always liked to, to have and own knives, collect knives, uh, accumulate them, as I like to say, rather than collecting, because collecting implies value. Um, if you're a knife guy, you probably have some tastes in terms of the aesthetics and the type of knife you like to collect. And the nicer the knives, the less likely they are to be part of the Pical universe. Because the Pical universe is definitely a move away from more elegant blade shapes to more purpose-driven ones. My friend called them Klingon knives. He's like, I'm sure these Klingon knives have a certain appeal. And he's not wrong, you know, the, as... As these knives take on more angular, more purpose-driven shapes, they become less uh, aesthetically pleasing to the eye. <clears throat> There's a big difference between like a Tanto with a true Tanto edge. Not an Americanized Tanto, which is hard angles, but a true curving Tanto edge. I mean, those are truly beautiful knives. Some of the, the handle wrap, I own a bunch of that type of stuff. And there's a big difference aesthetically and a difference in the satisfaction in collecting of that type of knife versus the very purpose-built, sometimes almost dull, not dull as in sharpness, but dull as in boring, knives that are built to be disposable, built to be used for a specific purpose, built simply to put the pointy end in the other guy over and over again so that you can defeat an attack. Um, you know, if you're thinking of your knife in, in, as something that you might actually have to use for quick and dirty self-defense, you're a lot less likely to spend the big bucks on a very expensive knife. This came up recently. A friend of mine passed on a link to me to a, a knife that is clearly a Pical knife. Uh, it's very angular. It's, it's not pretty by any stretch, but it's very stabby. And uh, come to find out after I posted a link, because it was a cheap knife available on Amazon, perfect, pretty much just what you'd want for a knife that you're going to use for expedient self-defense, if you're going to use a Pical method especially. 
And you wouldn't want it to be a ton of money because now I'm assuming you're not a criminal and you're not stabbing people and then throwing the knife away and whistling while you wander off and hope no one sees. But the fact is, if you ever use a knife for self-defense, that knife ends up in an evidence locker. So carrying around a $300 knife uh, is probably not what you're going to do. It doesn't make any sense. And there's nothing the $300 knife can do that the $30 knife can't do. Come to find out, the knife that I posted a link to on Facebook because it was a good buy People are like, that's a, that's a copy of a Blade Tricks knife. And I look up Blade Tricks, who I think I had heard of before, but I wasn't very aware of. Sure enough, they have a version of that knife. Same, you know, the, this Amazon Chinese knife was clearly a, a based on that. But the real knife is like $240. <clears throat> I don't think there's a lot of shared audience between somebody who's carrying a $30 knife and somebody who owns a $240 knife. But when it comes to self-defense, which would you rather have used? Which would you rather see end up in an evidence locker somewhere? You know, your $240 uh, collector piece or this $30, you know, midnight special? Saturday night special? Yeah, whatever. Um, so can we say that Pical has ruined knife collecting by changing the focus? I don't think specifically it has, but there are some realities of contemporary knife instruction that we should acknowledge. Um, Point-driven methodologies are sort of, I don't know if it's safe to say that they dominate contemporary knife instruction, but I think they're they're moving in that way if they haven't already. I mean, I say I don't know because I'm not aware of all the knife instruction happening out there, but <clears throat> point-driven methodology is definitely what settles things. Uh, you know, your choices are the edge and the point. And while you can do cool, flowy things with the edge, and nobody wants to get sliced, it's the point that touches your organs and turns them off. So, um, you know, the, it's long been known that the point is what settles things. And when it comes to improvised weapons, something that doesn't have a point at all, a screwdriver, a pen, any sharp, pointy object, you don't have the luxury of slicing. This reality was acknowledged in books like uh, Put Them Down, Take Them Out, which is sort of a classic of the expedient knife fighting instructional out there. Um, even Vito Quattrochi's Sicilian knife fighting, or Sicilian stiletto fighting, excuse me. That book is in many ways kind of misunderstood, and it has a lot of weird sort of trappings of what you bought the book for. Like, there's a lot of stuff about Sicilian stiletto dueling, and the pictures are of a dude in a vest with his stiletto almost fencing with it. But there are some elements in that book that really kind of speak to this uh, expedient, point-driven methodology. Um, less so than put them down, take them out. But there's a lot of stuff out there that touches on this. And <clears throat> coupled to that, we have the rise of the modern knife cult, which puts the emphasis on method over hardware, even though some of these knife cults have a preferred knife. Uh, for instance, Piper. <coughs> the Piper knife fighting system is all about, uh, you know, it, it, the knife is everything, and Piper teaches you how to use the knife to put it in the other guy and win the fight. Um, and they do some stuff that I don't agree with, like shimmering, which is rattling the little ring pull on your knife. I don't think that accomplishes anything. <clears throat> but we can disagree about that and still acknowledge the usefulness of a, of a system like that. 
kind of hard to tell what's going on in a lot of Piper videos that you see online. It, it's just a lot of fast movement. But I also know some people who are into Piper who do some really cool work. And their preferred knife is like the Okapi or the Kudu, both of which are ring pull knives. The original uh, Okapi is from South Africa and was popularized there. It's a cheap knife. And theoretically, it became popular among the criminal element because it is inexpensive. So these are people saying, no, no, don't carry a $400 knife. Carry this cheap knife, and specifically this one, um, which it's always a little weird when the knife cult adopts a, a preferred blade only because anytime we start to invest in a very specific tool, we're kind of moving away from the concept that made the knife cult relevant in the first place. I'm not saying they're doing anything bad by having a favored knife. I'm just saying that it is a natural evolution of any methodology to adopt some preferences that are sort of aesthetic in nature. Like, there's nothing the kudu can do that another folding knife cannot that has the same basically pointy blade style. So there's no reason you would carry that knife specifically other than to say, I'm part of the club. And I say this as somebody who owns several of those ring pull knives for that reason. So um, we're putting the knife cult, and I don't use cult negatively. Knife cults are simply martial arts that focus on the knife as the sum of everything. Uh, and there's lots of groups like that. Um, so when you when you have a knife cult pushing, emphasizing methodology over the blade, then collecting knives, uh, ooing and aahing over expensive knife types and knife shapes, that becomes very much secondary. So yes, that does move the emphasis away from knife collecting and theoretically, quote unquote, ruins knives. Um, that's just a reality of where the market is kind of moving. Um, which is not to say there aren't plenty of knives for sale and to collect and so on. It's just that knife culture, especially if you're plugged into like Instagram where lots of knife people post or any other social media areas where there's lots of people in the tactical knife community, you know, you can see the trends moving away from what they once were to what they are becoming. The And, you know, there's different pockets that have different emphases. Like uh, there's a Canadian EDC group that I'm in and they're all about um, expensive daily carry knives. You know, they're still into the knife collecting for collecting's sake. Um, some of them actually dive for their fainting couches whenever the concept of self-defense comes up. Uh, one guy I know posted a, uh, a picture of his EDC gear in a watch forum. I forget the brand of watches. And one of the items in his EDC was a pair of brass knuckles. And the folks in this watch forum practically swooned. They were so overwhelmed at the thought of somebody carrying brass knuckles as part of their everyday carry. <clears throat> so you can still find group to group and area to area. You can find cultures that mesh with what you specifically are interested in. But I do think the aggregate movement in the knife cultural overall among tactical people, among people who are carrying knives for self-defense, is definitely moving away from the more aesthetically pleasing and higher end stuff. And towards, like, who can be the most hobo-tactical with their cheap, disposable knives that they're carrying just for sticking the pointy end in the other guy? Um, people used to buy $200 folding knives and figured that they were knife fighters because they owned this expensive knife. And there was advertising that even sort of catered to that. I don't know if you remember when the, the Williams Hisatsu was not a Columbia River knife and tool knife, but was actually a much more expensive, like, I don't think I would call it custom, but it was, you know, it's like three or four hundred dollars. And I remember seeing ads that were kind of insulting to the reader, like, 
You've never been in a fight. You've never fought for your life. You've never done this. You've never done that. We can tell because of the knives you carry. The idea being that you carry this knife, and suddenly you're in the know, and you're much cooler and more tactical. I think that type of advertising misses the mark. I remember being... I remember thinking, like, this is not the way to advertise your expensive knife. And then, you know, the, the Columbia River started producing the Hisatsu, and I owned several of those, and everything was cool. <coughs> the evolution of what's current teaching in knife combatives is really fascinating. Um, and as we move to cheaper knives, more expedient knives, and away from stuff that's really beautiful or really expensive or really in or trendy you know like like gone are the days when people talked about carrying sabenzas as a daily carry folder which are you know these are expensive folding knives at least i don't see a lot of that amongst the instagram channels that i follow and i, I realize that some of this is sort of self-fulfilling it's it's you know if i was following a lot of expensive edc channels then maybe i'd be seeing posts about expensive ball bearing stainless steel uh, fidget spinners and stuff like that it's worth remembering that the knife and EDC community was briefly very enamored of very expensive metal fidget spinners. And arguably, I think, ugh, arguably, I think the fidget spinner craze might even have originated there. Um, I guess the point I'm making is uh, the more we see a progress towards realistic knife fighting, uh, knife instruction that emphasizes the brutal sewing machine nature of defending yourself with a knife and is less focused on fantasies of dueling and conceptions of protecting yourself with a knife that simply have never really been real. Uh, you know, stuff that's really more like what you see in the movies as opposed to what happens in real life. I think as we make that move, we do move away from knives that are pretty, knives that are worth collecting, knives that are what make the hobby of buying and owning knives a hobby. And, and that's something you either have or you don't. You're born with that or you develop it, but either way, you've got it or you don't, you don't got it. And I, I remember my, I've, been, I've had the, the knife bug, knives for knives sake, for as long as I can remember. When I was a very small child, uh, and I actually think I can illustrate this story by showing you something that I have here on my desk. When I was a very small child, my great-grandmother passed away. I was shown a box of her things, and I, I must have been six, something like that, and asked if there was anything I wanted, you know, sort of something to remember her by. And I homed right in on a knife that she apparently kept in her sewing kit. And uh, I was too young to own a knife, but my grandmother remembered. And so she set the knife aside. And then when I was an adult... I think this was when I was in college, she wrote me a letter, enclosed uh, the little dished out uh, sharpening stone that was in the sewing kit. The, the stone is actually warped from years of sharpening. And she included this tiny case folding knife. It's a little slip joint multi-blade folding knife that my great-grandmother used to carry in her sewing kit. Um, I did a little research on the knife. I found out that this design dates back to the to the late 40s or thereabouts, which makes sense. That's about the right time period. Um, and it is one of my most prized possessions. It sits in this little wooden box uh, with the, sh the sharpening stone and along with the letter 
that my grandmother included um, because the fact that she remembered that for so many years and set that aside for me has always been very special to me. But it, I tell you the story to show you that even as a very young child, I was into knives. Why? I don't know. Sometimes you just think they're cool. And for the longest time when I was a kid, the thing I wanted most in the world was a jackknife. And I was, you know, I, I think my parents struggled with when it would be appropriate for me to have something like that. And if you asked me, like, when can a kid, when are they old enough <clears throat> to own their first knife? I'm not actually sure. I think it's probably different for every child. I think it varies person to person. But eventually, my father presented me with my very first shell bolster jackknife and a book on whittling and the terse safety instructions to always cut away from myself. And that set me loose. And uh, I have been a knife guy ever since. And it's not, for me, knives are not always about uh, self-defense. I mean, yes, I'm a, I'm a firm believer and advocate of and for knives as self-defense weapons. But I also like knives for their own sake. I don't have a valuable collection of knives. I call it an accumulation because, again, collection implies value or some goal to collect value. And that's not what I'm about. Um, I just, I buy what I like. I buy what I think I'm going to use. I'm not very much into safe queens, although I have some expensive knives that I have set aside. Some of my most prized knives are actually Swiss Army knives that my father owned. Um, he be <coughs> Excuse me, I'm still getting over COVID. Um, my father passed away last year. It was almost exactly a year ago. And uh, he always carried the largest Swiss Army knife. And I found amongst a bunch of his stuff after, his, uh, after we cleaned out some of his stuff following his death, um, I found a bunch of old Swiss Army knives that clearly were the ones that had worn out and had been retired and relegated to a drawer because he replaced the one he was carrying in his pocket with a new one. I got, a, I got a chuckle out of that because I do the exact same thing. And I can never bring myself to get rid of the worn out ones. I just set them aside somewhere. So I now have, on a, uh, maybe I can point to it. My finger is pointing to a wooden box on top of my shelf. In that wooden box is a couple of Swiss Army knives that belong to my father. And you can always you could always tell stuff that belonged to him because my father had a tendency to paint stripes on all of his tools and knives. It was um, it was either red, yellow, red, or yellow, red, yellow. I can't remember. I think it was red, yellow, red. Um, that was because he was in the habit of early in life. I guess he probably loaned some tools to people and never got them back. So he determined that for the rest of his life that would never happen again. And so he marked all of his tools with his signature color stripes. It's kind of like when you go to the range and you've got a, you use a paint pen to mark your magazines. So after you drop them, not only do you know that you're yours, but if you're having trouble with the magazines, if you number them, then you know which one is giving you trouble. It's a weird connection to make. Anyway, uh, to answer the question, uh, is, is Bacall ruining knives? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that knife culture has moved towards kind of an uglier, less elegant, less civilized, in the words of Ben Kenobi, kind of conception of knives as self-defense tools. But no, in the sense that there are still huge areas of knives and knife collecting that are not affected by that realm, that are not really touched by what is contemporary knife self-defense instruction. So I think no matter what you do, Collect knives, collect nice expensive knives, enjoy them. 
if you're carrying a knife as a defensive weapon and you can legally do so, you should take into consideration some of the factors that we've discussed here, uh, especially if the blade you're carrying is destined to end up in an evidence bag. But beyond that, buy what makes you happy. Collect what makes you happy. Display it if you want. Um, do whatever and, and enjoy your hobby. I think knives are great just from a hobbying standpoint. Um, and I will always enjoy them. I don't think it will ever leave me. Um, and I don't think any trend is capable of destroying the hobby overall, even though it does have a little bit of influence. Um, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I have been Phil Elmore. This has been the Martial Arts Podcast. Until next time, pretend I said something cool here. This has been the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. Visit us online at linktree slash Elmore.